You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by Mike Carlin's novel, Uncorking a Murder. You can purchase Uncorking a Murder in paperback and ebook format wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to share with you my interview with Otto Penzler. His latest anthology, The Big Book of Espionage, is hot off the presses and can be purchased wherever books are sold and, of course, at the Mysterious Bookshop located in Manhattan's Tribeca neighborhood, uh, which Otto owns, by the way. Uh, so go down there and say hi to Otto. And who knows, maybe you'll run into uh, Bobby De Niro. I know he uh, he lives down there. He used to have a restaurant down there, or maybe more than one. I don't know, he used to go to a restaurant down there that he owned. It's quite good. Uh, now, you're going to hear Otto talk about um, this during our conversation. But one thing that he said really stuck with me. And it, it's, he's telling the story about how he emigrated to the U.S. from Germany in 1942 when he was five years old. And, of course, in 1942, World War II was in full swing. Otto's mother, who was American, took him and his younger brother on an 11-day voyage by sea to New York. And he talks about seeing the Statue of Liberty for the first time. And that story, I mean, that's just a cool story, right? You know, you're five years old, you see Lady Liberty. But that story reminded me of a scene in The Godfather Part Two, And that's when, you know, young Vito Andolini came to New York after he left Sicily. Um, it was his father was murdered by the mafia. His mother was killed. His brother was killed. He was kind of alone. So he, he heads off to, well, he gets smuggled out of town and he heads to New York by boat. And there's a scene where, where he's on the ship and they're crossing, you know, through uh, New York Harbor. And he sees the Statue of Liberty. And when Otto was talking about this, that's where my mind went, you know, to, to young Vito Andolini from The Godfather Part Two coming to uh, coming to the New World. Um, and it was there, of course, you know, on Ellis Island when a clerk changed his name from Vito Andolini to Vito Corleone because he was from Corleone, Italy. And, um, of course, that young boy would uh, go on to become the head of the Corleone family and be referred to as Don Corleone or as the godfather. But Don Corleone, right? Uh, now, my father's name, my father's name is Don, and our last name is Carlin, so it wasn't a stretch. His, his, the people who used to work for him at American Express used to refer to him from time to time as Don Corleone, or oftentimes they would just shorten it to uh, the Don. You know, they would call him the Don. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe that's because he ran his team, you know, like uh, like Don Corleone ran his family, you know, but but I don't know. I have no idea if that's true. Um, I'd like to believe, though, that when he was sitting in front of a merchant who was hesitant to take the American Express card, 
that they'd always sign with him because he made them an offer they couldn't refuse. You probably saw that one coming, didn't you? Um, But as I record this, my father is actually in the hospital. He's recovering from a blood infection, and that's not what actually sent him into the hospital. That would be pain in the back. He had back pain so bad he couldn't get out of bed, so they called um, 911, and uh, they came. They took him to the hospital. A couple of days in, they saw that he was getting a fever. They did a blood culture. Lo and behold, boom, blood infection, and... Um, I guess the, the, the horrible thing about that is, I mean, look, there's nothing great about having a blood infection. Um, what's worse is they can't really treat the pinched nerve in his back until they get the blood infection under control. So he's he's in a lot of pain, and he still can't he can't get out of bed. He's kind of lost his independence, so to speak. Um, and no one can see him in the hospital now because of this stupid COVID uh, that's that's kind of had a resurgence. Um, he's down in South Florida, and uh, you know it's it's not doing good anywhere in the country, but it's certainly not doing uh, well down there. And um, fortunately, though, my twin brother Jimmy, who who you heard about last week, you know, brother Jimmy, if you remember, uh, he flew down to stay with my mom, and uh, he's holding down the fort. Um, and I'm so grateful that he was able to do that. It was actually challenging for. Uh, the rest of us to to be able to do it, but uh, brother Jimmy took one for the team, and uh, he is uh, down there running his uh, law practice. So very uh, very happy he could do it. But this this all gets me to thinking about the cycle of life, the cycle of life. I talked to my father yesterday on the phone, and because he he can't get out of bed, um. He'll probably hate me for saying this. He won't hate me for saying this, but he'll be embarrassed. I'm going to say it anyway. They put a diaper on him. And it's a reminder to me that we are born into this world totally dependent on our caretakers. And if you live long enough, my father's 88 years old, um, that independence you acquire starts to erode a bit. Um, but... Um, you know, it's it's really what you do between those two points that matters. It's what you do between those two points that matters. And this is not a eulogy, right? I have no doubt that my dad will recover from this event. However, I I also know that, you know, God, worst case scenario, if he had to look back on his 88 years, he can absolutely do so without a doubt and say that he had a great life. Now, he's been married to my mom for almost 64 years. Um, how she put up with him that long, I have no idea. She, she would always joke, though, that because he traveled so much when he was uh, working for American Express that, that you could actually shave half of those years off because he wasn't really around. Um, that's not to say he was an absentee father. He wasn't. I'm just trying to make a point here. Uh, but in addition to being married to my mom, he's got four kids. None of us have ever been to prison. Um, now that could be a low bar <laughs> for success. Um, but you know, the higher bar is that, you know, all of us, you know, maintain great relationships with him. He's got nine grandchildren who can't wait to go back to Florida when things are safe to visit him or flow do, as my kids used to say when they were younger, I've got three 18 year olds now, but they used to call Florida flow do. Um, they also, by the way, used to call my, my father crappa, um, <laughs> Which, you know, given the fact that he's wearing a diaper now is, uh, I guess, uh, is it ironic? I don't know. Um, 
benign grandchildren. You know, he served his country in the Coast Guard. He he was so proud to do that. Um, he treasured. Uh, I mentioned before that he worked for American Express. He treasured the forty three years that he spent with American Express. And you know, look, he led a great life. He's got a few faults. He's got a few faults. It's fair to say that the Don wasn't born with an abundance of patience. I don't think anybody would accuse him of having an abundance of patience. He also doesn't like dogs, uh, but he is quick to point out that dogs like him. And that's the important thing. I I think secretly the man does love dogs Um, because if a dog, if a dog senses you don't like it, it's not going to like you. The dogs love my dad. He just puts on this, this exterior um, about not liking dogs. I don't believe it. I don't buy it for a minute. My dogs like him. Uh, but just to bring this all full circle, right? Uh, when I was growing up, and when Jimmy and I were growing up, uh, re- remember we're twins, my father took us to every James Bond movie that ever came out. He loved him some Jimmy Bond. And uh, James Bond is, of course, the creation of Ian Fleming. And lo and behold, a story by Ian Fleming is featured in Otto Penzler's Big Book of Espionage. See how I did that? Uh, so state secrets, double agents, leaks. Otto Penzler brings you all this and more with his latest title in the big book series. No need to wait for the government to release redacted information. Otto is ready to declassify confidential matters in the big book of espionage. So without further commercial interruption, here's my interview with the one and only Otto Penzler. Well, I, it, I was born in Hamburg, Germany. Uh, in 1942, um, which was the middle of the war, and Hamburg was uh, the biggest seaport in Germany, and so we were, it was bombed every night. Uh, my mother was American. She was born and raised in America. Her mother was American as well, and so I knew a lot about America already, uh, but just in general. You know, my mom loved this country and I learned to love it, too, from her and then from my uh, my experiences. So when, when you came over, you am I right in believing you came into uh, the Bronx in New York? Sure. Came into uh, uh, the into Manhattan, where the boat to Ellis Island, where the boat docked. We went through the usual immigration things. Uh, a, a weird story is that uh, we, it was a, um, a freighter. That, that had been transported, uh, that had been cha- changed to a, uh, a passenger ship. And so it wasn't really a comfortable ride. It took 11 days to cross the ocean, and I was seasick every minute of it. Um, and uh, so I woke up early, and we were due to arrive at a, in New York at about noon or, or 10 o'clock in the morning to noon. And it was the middle of the night, and I was seasick, and I was looking out the window, and I saw the Statue of Liberty through the fog. And I woke up my mother and it was like four in the morning, totally dark. And I woke her up and I said, we're here. You know, she, she said, no, it's too early. Go back to bed. You're dreaming. I said, no, no, no. I see the statue of Liberty. And she said, no, no, please just go back to bed. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. And through the fog, there was the torch lighted and I saw it and I convinced her finally. And she burst into tears Wow, and seeing her crying. I was not quite five. So then I started crying um, out of tears of joy. And then my, my little brother, who was two and a half, 
woke up and saw his mother and his big brother crying. And he started crying. He had no idea why. The chain reaction. Uh, yeah. And then uh, from there, we went up uh, to uh, my grandmother's apartment in the, uh, in the Bronx, which is where we first lived for, for a short time. Okay. Okay. So your mother was from New York then? Yes. Okay. What, from I mean, the Bronx, in, in fact. From the Bronx, and what and what was her what was her back what was her ethnicity what, what was her background? She was German uh, back in the day, but you know if you would ask her if you asked her like identify herself, she would have said she was American even while she was in England. Yeah, wow, wow, and what you know what did um what did you notice in terms of and I know you were only five at the time, but um in terms of the biggest differences that you experienced being in, in New York and the Bronx, you know, versus your, your home company, obviously there, there's no bombing going on, but what did you come to notice as big cultural differences? I'm curious. There was food. There was food in America. There was food in New York, uh, which was a big change. You know, we, we were so starving in Germany uh, during the war years, particularly my grandmother eventually after the war ended was able to send care packages. And so we would get some food. Uh, but for quite a while, uh, there was, there was no food. Uh, yeah. You know, if there was a, if the farms were producing anything at all, it went to the military, it went to the soldiers and sailors and so on, German soldiers. Um, there was nothing for, for the general population. Uh, at one point, my mom uh, tried boiling tree bark uh, to see if there was some nutrients in a soup that she could get from from that, which which didn't work. Um, there wasn't a lot of food in America because there was still rationing, um, and so it was it was a struggle for a while. But but having some food was a lot better than having no food. That was the most important thing I I, I noticed. Plus, the lack of bombing was kind of comfort, comforting. <laughs> they put that in the plus column, right? No, yeah, definitely <laughs> no bombing. Um... And so how long, how long did you wind up staying in the Bronx for? Uh, in various neighborhoods for uh, the first 35 years of my life. Uh, and then uh, a partner and I bought a building in midtown Manhattan. Uh, and it makes, which, which is really cool, right? It makes me sound like, oh, this millionaire, you know, bought a building in midtown Manhattan. Uh, it, was in the, it was in the 70s. It was in the summer of 1978 when New York was broke and people were in overtaxed dreadfully, people were fleeing the city. And this man had a, a brownstone house. It was kind of behind Carnegie Hall on 56th Street in Manhattan. And he was so eager to get out. Uh, my life savings at that point uh, was $2,000. And that was my down payment on the building. And uh, it, was the, it was the greatest, greatest uh, decision of my uh, uh, financial life. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, do, do you still own the building now or did you turn that over years ago? No, we sold it about about uh, 15 years ago. My partner was uh, had turned 65 and was retiring and he went to cash in. And uh, so we had we had to sell the building and I couldn't afford his half. Uh, so. Uh, we moved okay. to, I now, the bookshop is now in Tribeca yep. in lower Manhattan. Okay. So that was the first home of, of the bookshop. Yeah. We, we were there for, I started the, the bookshop simply because I had started the mysterious press in 1975 and I did everything myself. 
Uh, I contracted the book. I did the contracts. Uh, I wrote flap copy for the dust jackets. I hired the artist, uh, edited the book, uh, sent out review copies, uh, took care of orders, packed the books, took them to the post office, you know, typed the invoices, I did, uh, everything. Up. I, I published uh, a couple of books that didn't sell anything. And then I, then I signed a book with Robert Block, who wrote Psycho. And all of a sudden, this book is selling. And I'm typing fa- invoices as fast as I can. I'm wrapping books as fast as I can. Um, and I couldn't keep up. So I thought, you know, I was living in an apartment in the Bronx. And you couldn't very well call a secretarial service and say, oh, send a girl up to my apartment in the Bronx. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I started looking for a place in Manhattan that I could rent uh, that had an ex- that would have an extra room that I could have as an office, um, but I couldn't afford the rents. And so I wound up buying the building, which is too <laughs> hilarious. The building cost $177,000 yeah. with a, my $2,000 down payment. In Manhattan, you could not buy a broom closet for $177,000 today. Uh, it was a, just a different era. Yeah. And so, but once I had the building, uh, I thought, well, I have all this space. Why don't I open a bookshop? That would be fun. I didn't know anything about running a bookshop, but I hadn't known anything about running a publishing company either. I was a sports writer. So when I started this publishing company, I knew nothing. And I made every mistake it was possible for anybody to make. And I kept making them for a long time. I still make some, but, but at least they're different mistakes now. Well, I mean, it sounds like a true entrepreneurial story, but I do want to back up for a minute because, you know, when, when you were, you know, when, when you were a kid kind of growing up in New York, did you know you wanted to own a building? Did you know that you wanted to be in the publishing industry or what did, what did you want to be? Um, well, when I was a very little kid, I wanted to be uh, a scientist because my father had been a scientist. So uh, so I thought, I'm going to be a physicist because it sounded so cool to be. I don't know what a physicist did at the age of seven, you know, but it sounded cool. So I, I, I did that for quite a while. I had that dream for quite a while. Uh, I, went to a sc- I went to a high school in Manhattan that's fairly famous for, uh, for teaching science, called the Bronx High School of Science, mm-hmm. um, which you, know, you have to take special tests to get in and so on. But I didn't really like it. And so I decided that I was going to be one of two things. Uh, my career path, uh, by the time I was a teenager, was going to be one of two things. I was either going to be playing center field for the New York Yankees, or I was going to be writing great American novels. It was going to be one or the other. And both and, of those are very hard to do. <laughs> yes, I, I did discover that. Yet another mistake that I made, a life filled with mistakes. Um, so the summer, I graduated uh, from high school fairly early because I, I skipped some time. So uh, the summer between my 16th year when I graduated and 17th when I went off to the University of Michigan, I wrote my first novel. And uh, uh, when I got to Michigan, my fraternity brother was Edmund White, who uh, has become very, very famous as a New York Times bestseller uh, as a gay writer. Uh, he wrote... Uh, uh, the, about his experiences uh, as a gay man w- long before it was, it was common to do so. Um, nobody in Michigan knew that he was gay because in those days, everybody was in the closet. This is 1959 mm-hmm. uh, that I'm talking about. So every gay person in America was in the closet. Um, 
Liberace was in the closet, you know. <laughs> Which is hard to believe, right? Yeah. Um, but Ed, Ed, Edmund and I became very good friends at, uh, at, at, our, at the fraternity in Michigan. And he confessed that he had written a novel as well. And we, deter- and we decided that we would each read the other's novel and comment on it. And so I read his and it was my turn first to talk to him. You know, and I very carefully said, this is very long. There's really not much going on here. This is kind of boring. This character's good. You know, so I spent like half an hour um, criticizing and analyzing his book. And then it became his turn to talk to mine. Uh, And he very succinctly said, Otto, this is a piece of shit. (laughs) You may have to edit that out for your audience. (laughs) <laughs> not, not at all, but was, was that a fair assessment in your mind? Oh, yeah. Oh, it, it wasn't at the time. It broke yeah. my heart. Yeah. But, uh, I, but I took, he was really a smart guy. He was majoring in Chinese. You know, he was that kind of an intellect. Um, and so I put it away. And then the next summer, I reread it. I, I didn't want to look at it again. It was toxic, you know. Uh, but the following year, I read it. And I thought, boy, this is a piece of junk, you know. And I... <laughs> And, and tossed it, you know, it was gone. I, I will say this, it does take a lot of courage to, to hand something over like that, though, to give to someone else to read. So, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of courage that, <laughs> that, that, that goes on with that because, um, you know, you're exposing cur- yourself. Yeah, it, it was courage. It was also arrogance. You know, I True. thought, I, I know how to write. You know, this is, this is going to be pretty good. I can't wait to hear the compliments come in. I, I can't wait to have him tell me how, what a masterpiece I've just written at the age of 16. <laughs> so, yes, it was courageous. I was nervous, of course, but so was he. He was also young. He was, I was a freshman. He was a sophomore, you know, so he was still a young guy. So, yeah, we both had courage. We both had arrogance. Turns out he was a pretty good writer. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, what, what did you learn about yourself just in that one experience? That I will never write fiction again. Uh, that uh, that my my talents lie elsewhere, uh, <laughs> and so that was uh, that was the end of one career. And uh, I tried playing baseball, and uh, the guys in the Midwest. I was really good in New York, uh, but in the Midwest, the catcher on the Michigan team was Bill Freehand, uh, who wound up going uh, being a, a nine-time All Star for the Detroit Tigers. And he was the catcher. He was, he was also the tight end on the football team. He was 6'3", 220 pounds, and he ran faster than I did. And I'm 5'8", and in those days weighed 150 pounds. Yeah. I'm still 5'8", but I don't weigh 150 pounds anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, so baseball is off. Uh, writing fiction, you, you decided, hey, probably not for me. Um, but, so, I, I, so I became a sports writer. Okay. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, I, uh, I went for a job in, uh, in, I minored in journalism. Michigan didn't offer a major in journalism. So I majored in English literature and, uh, minored in journalism and came to New York and, uh, applied for a job at the daily news, which had the best sports section in the city in those days. Um, and they said, no, we don't have any jobs, but we'll keep your name on file and we'll be in touch with you if a job opens. So I did get a job at Women's Wear Daily, where uh, it was journalism, 
uh, paid $100 a week. This is 1963, which wasn't very much money, but it was $100 a week. It wasn't terrible. And uh, a few weeks later... So unfortunately, our audio cut out at this point, but Otto was talking about how he was offered a job for less money to work in the sports department of a competing newspaper. Um, and he wound up taking that job, even though it involved a rather significant pay cut. And I, and I took the job. My, my mother was like, excuse me, <laughs> you're getting 100 and you're excited about going for 42. I said, yeah, because this is my chance to get on my path to be a sports writer. Uh, and it was 37 take home, by the way. The government still took five bucks out of the 42, <laughs> which I still resent to this day. <laughs> so you. So then I, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, no. but yeah. So then I went on uh, and went to the sports department, uh, first as a statistician, um, and then got to write some features and things of that sort. And then uh, was hired by ABC Sports to uh, be. Uh, publicity director at ABC Sports when in 19, when they started in 1969 when they started Monday Night Football. Okay. But, you know, at that time, I know it sounds sort of counterintuitive to, to go down from, you know, $100 a week, but at that point in your life, I mean, what, what other responsibilities did you have? I mean, you, it doesn't sound like you were married at the time, no, no children or anything like that, right? Well, uh, actually, I was married. Oh, okay. Uh, but we weren't living together yet. Uh, I, we got married when I turned 21 and, uh, she was still living at home. She was a lot older than I, she had been my junior high school teacher. We began a, uh, how, how can I say a serious friendship? Okay. Uh, just before my 15th birthday. Okay. And, uh, we were devoted to each other. She was 15 years older. Yeah. So she was an elderly woman of 29 <laughs> when, when we started, you know, um, consummating our friendship. Fair enough. Okay. Um, and then wrote to each other every day when I was in Michigan and uh, both of us did. And then when I came back, we uh, waited just a short time. And then when I turned 21, we got married, but she was still, um, teaching and making quite a lot of money. I was making nothing. And it was embarrassing for, for me to say, well, come on and, you know, live with me, you know, on $42 <laughs> a week. And so it was, it was soon after I, uh, I got the job at ABC where I started making serious money. I mean, serious in those days or serious by my standards, which were pretty low. I mean, it was, and, and tell me if this is too too personal, but did you have to hide that marriage from from your family? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, first, we had the affair. Obviously, I mean, she would have gone to jail. Yeah. You know, um, and I was just, you know, and, and I there are stories about it all the time now about you know teachers who have affairs with their students. And they're, they're talking about, oh, the abuse that this poor boy of 15 is having because he's having an affair with his, you know, blonde babe of a teacher who's 28. And I'm thinking, abuse? Man, I had the happiest teenage years <laughs> of any kid in America. I was happy every day of my life, you know? You look back and call it abusive if you want to. Sorry, 
I was the luckiest, happiest kid in America. I, I could see people sitting now watching this and, and being outraged at all of this, but she was a great, she was a wonderful person in many ways, the most influential person in my life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm still grateful to the time that we had. Well, very, very good. Thank you for sharing that. Um, but I was, I was just, I was where I was going was, you know, when you're young, you can take those risks, you know, to, to go from a hundred dollars a week to, was it 42? Sure. Um, you can take those risks. And wh- when are you going to do that? You're not going to have a time. There's probably no better time in your life to try and, and make a change like that. Um, because the stakes aren't as high yet to follow a dream, to follow a dream. Um, you know, once you get older, you have kids like me. I would love to, to 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 follow my original passions, but you know, I put those off, and there's probably no no going back to them. Probably uh, not. Once you have responsive, serious responsibilities, then you have to take them responsibly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No kidding. So, um, so you 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 uh, eventually get the job um, writing sports, and then you go to ABC. Um, right. What was what was it like working for for ABC in those days? That was exciting. You know, ABC was the third network. AB, a, uh, CBS and NBC were the major networks. ABC was uh, in third place on every in every category except sports because Rune Arledge was the direct was the president of ABC Sports and was a genius. And ABC Sports was by far the most uh, competent and most exciting place to be. Uh, you know, Monday Night Football was a great innovation. Uh, did the, the the Olympics? You know, all of the great sports shows were on ABC. But the, you know, the fact is, I didn't really want to be a publicist. You know, it wasn't exactly my dream to become a publicist. Nothing wrong with being a publicist, but it wasn't what I wanted. Um, so I left to write um, uh, for Harry Reasoner. Uh, I don't know if if you remember, he was. He had his own show. It was called The Reasoner Report, uh, which I wrote uh, for a while. And then he went on to 60 Minutes. He was one of the original people on 60 Minutes. Um, and I did that. And that was that was a really hard job uh, because I had to come up with a new idea for his show every day. And uh, it was it was hard for me to come up with, with these ideas. And so I resigned. Um, and then the producers of the show said, look, everybody resigns because it's such a hard job, but would you stay until we can find a replacement? And uh, I said, yeah, sure. And that was 18 months later. <laughs> I was, my friends all abandoned me because if I saw them, I would say, Hey, can you give me an idea for a show? You know, and it was just brutal, but I finally did. And that's when I started mysterious press and tr- tried to earn a living as a freelance writer. And trying to earn a living as a freelance writer is a hard way to earn a living, even if you have talent. And if you have it, and if you're trying it without talent, as I did, it's really, it's really a struggle. <laughs> let me tell you. But so, tell me a little bit more about Mysterious Press um, and, and why you know what is it about you know this this genre that that captivates you so much? Because I mean, you've worked with a who's who of of people and in crime and mystery, but, but take me to the, take me to the early days of that. And, and, and we'll work, um, we'll work our way through it. I never read mysteries as a kid. Um, everybody thinks I started early, but I, I really didn't. I was reading science fiction. I was reading a lot of nonfiction, American history and about animals and things like that, which I really liked. 
Uh, and then as an English major, you know what you read as an English major. You read T.S. Eliot and James Joyce and Russian novelists and Ezra Pound. And it, you just hurt your head every time you start reading something. Uh, so when I came back to New York, I wanted to read because I always read from the time I, I was very, very young. Um, but I didn't want to keep hurting my head. So I thought, let me read mysteries. You know, everybody reads mysteries, it seems. I started with Sherlock Holmes. You know, oh, there's a big surprise. <laughs> how, how original of you, Otto. Um, and then I read Agatha Christie and Ellery Queen and John Dixon Carr um, and loved the puzzles. I really enjoyed trying to figure it out. I never could. I was just pathetic at it. I still am. I'm always fooled. It's, it's always the least likely person, but I think, oh, that person's so unlikely that could never be that person, but it's always that person. <laughs> I always believe it's the most likely suspect because all arrows point to that person. And I think, oh yeah, that's obviously him or her. And it never is. So after, four, after 50 years of doing this, you would think I would learn something, but no, I haven't. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I started reading and, um, and then I discovered Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett, and James M. Cain. And I suddenly realized, wait a minute, this is, this is serious literature. It's not just about the puzzles. Depth of, psycholo of psychological examination that Dashiell Hammett uses is every bit the equal of Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Theodore Dreiser and the popular writers of, of the time of when they were working. And so I became quite a devotee of, of mystery and crime fiction. And I started collecting first editions. Um, I liked the idea of collecting first editions of books. And uh, I found that mystery fiction was non-competitive. There were very few people collecting that. I wound up having a library of 60,000 first editions. It was the greatest collection in the world. Um, but as a result of the collecting and the reading I wound up writing a book, co-authoring co a book called The Encyclopedia of Mystery and Detection, for which I won an Edgar. We won Edgars. And as a result, you know, when you write an encyclopedia, you're suddenly the world's foremost expert. Right. And I'm, I might have been, because I'd read a lot of mystery fiction in those days, and I became fairly active in writing about mysteries and examining books and criticizing mysteries and so on. Um, so that really was the foundation. And I became friends with Joan Kahn, uh, the greatest mystery editor who ever lived, in my opinion, uh, who was working at Harper. And she had her own imprint. It was a Joan Kahn novel of suspense. Uh, and she discovered people like Dick Francis and Tony Hillerman and Michael Gilbert and a lot of other uh, great writers. And um, we became friends and I was lamenting the fact that people wrote about and talked about mysteries as if it were just pure genre fiction without appreciating the, the depth of, uh, of a great deal of it. And uh, so I said, you know, publishers, they're publishing these two colored dust jackets and they're not using cloth bindings. They're using pressed paper, you know, whereas the books of poetry and belles lettres and so on. Uh, are getting the, this very classy treatment. And she said, so why don't you start your own publishing company? I said, I don't know anything about publishing. <laughs> she said, oh, it's, how hard could it be? I think is you know, something like that. And I said, yeah, how hard could it be? I'm smart. I can figure this out. 
And so uh, th- that's really kind of how it started. Wow. So, I mean, just, just having worked so much um, in that area, is, is there anything that surprises you anymore? I mean, how could somebody possibly get your attention now with, with a mystery? Well, you write Gone Girl. Mm. I read that book, and I'm telling you, halfway through or a third of the way through, whenever it was, it, the surprise took me. I was shocked. Yeah. I mean, literally shocked. <laughs> you know? um, I'm not usually surprised anymore because I'm expecting twists and turns. No, I am surprised. Let me, let me rephrase that. I'm surprised at every time a writer has a twist. It's like, oh, I didn't expect that. But it's not shocking. I'm expecting twists. Because if there aren't any twists, you don't really have an interesting book right. in the mystery genre. You know, there has to be the unexpected. There has to be the surprise. And I like the surprises. I like being surprised. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I, uh, and they have to be executed the right way. You know, you can't really, I guess it's not a twist if you could see it coming from a mile away. But, um, but I agree with you, Gone Girl, uh, that whole unreliable narrator. Yeah. Um, that that got me, and that got me. Then, then I got to see it being overdone, maybe a little bit. But um, I, I love a good unreliable narrator. I'll be honest with you. Well, you know, it's uh, because of Gone Girl and other good books with unreliable narrators. I actually started another uh, another publishing company called Scarlet, which is devoted to domestic suspense, psychological suspense, uh, with un- largely with unreliable narrators. Because it is, it's a rich field for uh, for people who know how to write well. On yeah, so it's it's a it's a general generally an, a really interesting field. Well, let's let's talk about espionage because I have uh, in front of me the uh, the big book of espionage. So let's uh, let's talk about uh, present day. So I have this uh, very large, <laughs> very large book. What 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 uh, what had you thinking uh, about spies? Um, not that espionage is not that spies are just about espionage, but I guess they are. Um, yeah, mostly. Well, you know, I've been doing a series of uh, what are called big books for Random House for Vintage at Random House for uh, fourteen years. Um, it started with a big book of pulps, which did extremely well. Uh, it actually made the bestseller list, which is rare for an anthology, really rare. Um, and so my publisher wisely, my editor wisely said, you want to do another big book? And I said, sure. And so we began this series of big books, um, big book of Sherlock Holmes stories, big book of Christmas mysteries, uh, big book of female detectives, big book of locked room mysteries, um, and so on. And so they take a year. I read, uh, I read three, four, maybe 500 stories to pick the best. And the, these books are like 800 to 1,000 pages, yeah. oversized, double column. Uh, they're the equivalent of six or eight normal-sized books. And they're $26 or something like that. It's the biggest bargain in publishing, I think. Uh, so anyway, so... I spend a year, I, have a, I get a contract, I'm due to deliver my book in October, so I deliver my book, and I have lunch with my editor, and uh, he says, so do you have another idea? What's, what's the next idea? So I give him my next idea, and he says, great, we'll get you a contract, which he does, and I start reading. I go home that weekend, and I start 
making lists of authors that I want to read and who I know are appropriate. You know, having done all of this in the mystery field now as a reader and as a collector, as a bookseller, as a publisher, et cetera, for, for so many years, I know this stuff pretty well. So I kind of know who I'm going to be looking at. And then I do some research and I add, oh, that's an interesting, I didn't know that person wrote a story in this genre, in this subgenre. And so um, I make my reading list and I start reading. Um, and a couple of years ago, I delivered my book, big book of uh, real murders, R-E-E-L, which was a co big collection of stories that inspired movies, mystery movies, suspense movies. Um, I delivered that and he said, well, what's the next book? I said, Espionage. Said, Great, let's do that. And I'm a big fan. I've read a lot of espionage fiction in my life. I really like it. Uh, and some great, great writers have worked in that field. And so I had a lot of fun reading books for the big book of espionage. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, just um, I, I got hooked on that genre years ago. I was on vacation in, in Cape Cod. Um, and uh, I picked up a book uh, by Daniel Silva called The Unlikely Spy. Sure. And I, I got hooked. Um, I got hooked. And then, I, then, then he went off and, and kind of you know, had, had a different series. But um, then I started reading a lot of Ken Follett. And I, you know, he became like a drug. I, I like gobbled up every, everything I could by him. Um, but, uh, you know, it's... Um, it's just I don't know I don't know what it is about espionage that that captures me so much. Maybe I wanted to be James Bond as a kid. I'm not I'm not sure. <laughs> we all we all do. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be James Bond? R.I.P. Sean Connery. Um, oh, really? But um, what about film adaptations of, of 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 written work? What's your take on that? I mean, you know, I'm sure you've read a lot of Ian Fleming, but what do you think about the movies? Well, the, you know, there have been many, many more movies than, than Ian Fleming wrote James Bond novels. Yeah. Uh, and, but in fact, John Gardner followed Ian Fleming and wrote more books about James Bond than Fleming did. Fleming wrote 12. Uh, John Gardner did 14. Then Raymond Benson did about six, I think, at least four. Uh, and then other writers have picked it up and done. There are a lot of James Bond books, and a lot of James Bond movies. Uh, the, the James Bond movies uh, are wonderful. They didn't, don't have a whole lot to do with espionage anymore, yeah. you know, um, and it's a strange kind of uh, villain tend to be people who want to take over the world or who want all the money in the world. Right. You know? right. Those are his villains. So they're not really espionage the way that we mostly think of espionage being the way John le Carre would write it, the way the great Charles McCary writes it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I remember reading the, the spy that came in from the cold. Um, and it is, it does feel uh, so much different than what you'd think of, you know, when you think of a James Bond type thing. Oh, it is. It is different. And it, it it's, it also, well, that's a very, it's a very important book because it was the first time that a writer from either England or America wrote about the spy system, the MI5, MI6, or CIA, uh, which was just as dark as the enemy, just as amoral as the enemy. And 
always the Somerset Maugham, uh, Ian Fleming, John Buchan, E. Phillips Oppenheim, all the British writers who were working in that field, the Brits were always the good guys and the Nazis or the Soviets were the bad guys. We understood who was right, who was wrong, who was good, who was bad. And Le Carre actually had that, uh, uh, broke down that barrier. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, although I think he may be certainly one of the two greatest writers who have ever worked in that field, uh, I think his sense of uh, um, morality may be somewhat compromised. Yeah. Well, there's got to be some, some, you know, in a, you know, I grew up in a time when, um, you know, child of the 80s, when, of course, we were always against the Russians. And you grow up believing that, the, you know, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. But, you know, even the good guys have to have some bad guys, right, to, to, get, to get their missions accomplished. Well, yeah, when James Grady wrote Six Days of the Condor, you know, as we now know, the, the villain was the CIA, it was also true of Hopscotch, where uh, the movie is, is a comedy. Walter Matthau is just hilarious. Yeah. And Glenda Jackson, of course, was great in it. Uh, but the book is very dark. It's not a comedy at all. And again, it was the CIA was, was the bad guy. Uh, yeah. I'm wondering, you know, just knowing what you know about espionage, do you ever, ever think you can go behind enemy lines and, uh, and, and play the role of spy or, uh, <laughs> or not necessarily? <laughs> I, you know, it, when you read, well, look, you know, the, the great line about James Bond is every man wants to be him. Every woman wants to be with him. And so is that an attractive notion? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, could I really do it? No. Uh, first of all, I don't know if I have the courage. Uh, number two, I, I'm not able to leap tall buildings in a single bound you know, the way, the way Bond is, is, all the things that he could do. I could never do those things. And also, I, I, I'm, I'm taken in by everybody. I believe everybody. I'm a laughing stock among my friends and, 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 and colleagues. It's like, you believe that guy? I said, yeah. Why would he lie? I said, everybody lies on him. I said, no, I, I believe everybody. I never believe that people lie to me. And they do all the time. So I would believe everybody. So the worst thing a spy can do is believe people. And I also, I'm not, I'm no good at duplicity. I'm not smart enough to remember lies. So I have to tell the truth. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a lot to keep. I gotta gotta imagine the psychological toll of being a spy has got to be pretty heavy. Yeah, it is. And, uh, and actually some of the stories in, um, the big book of espionage cover that it, 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 it addresses that issue of, of how nervous it makes somebody, how, uh, how self analyzing they become like, what kind of a person am I, if I can do this, you know, here's somebody who trusts me and I'm betraying that trust because I'm a, I'm a spy or a counter spy. Right. I mean, there's that element of doing what you have to do, you know, to, to play your role and do your job. But there's also the ability to do that well has got to be scary, you know, to, to people. You know, it's like, what, what kind of monster lurks inside me? Um, yeah. You know, and most of the spies um, in the book are, are male, in, mostly. But there, are, there have been females, a lot of female spies through the years. 
uh, and some of the stories involve female spies. So, uh, but imagine the person married to that spy. Like if you can lie to all those people and make everybody believe you, how do I know you're telling the truth to me all the time? Right. So wouldn't that person that you're sleeping with have real concerns about who are you? Yeah. Can I trust you? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've been reading a lot about the illegals program, you know, from, uh, you know, the Soviet Union, um, uh, you know, where they were hiding people in, in America, kind of covering. And that that actually fascinates me. Um, I was a big fan of the show The Americans. Um, I don't know if you ever if you ever watched that, but, um, you know, it stars Matthew Rice, who, who just uh started a, a a new Perry Mason series and my wife accuses me of having a man crush on him. But, um, but this, this idea of, of like a husband and wife kind of going in together um, as, 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 as spies is, is also quite, quite fascinating and, and kind of duping everybody around them. It is. Um, what, one of the stories in uh, the big book of espionage um, is told from the point of view of a, of a couple and, and you're in their mind. So you're seeing that they're concerned about their neighbors across the way who they aren't trusting and they're not sure about these people. And it's only at the very end. I'm not going to give the name of the story because I don't want to blow it. Yeah. It's only at the very end of the story when you realize, you know, these are Soviet spies that we have been rooting for and concerned about the people across the street who were actually spying on them. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a brilliant surprise when you're reading this, like, Oh, th- look at this. You know, we were rooting for the bad guys, not knowing that we were a wonderful, wonderful story. I, I love that though. I love it when, you know, you find yourself rooting for people who you shouldn't be rooting for. I found myself, um, I don't want to say rooting for the British, but oh god, what was the book I just read um, about the spies during um, the the Revolutionary War? Um, oh gosh, it's one of these brain brain. They made a TV show about it um, recently. This will happen more as you age. Trust me oh, when I tell you this. You know, I'm only 46, but I have the mind of a 95 year old. Um, but I found myself like sympathizing a little bit with the British, you know, and we all, we all, you know, grew up believing, Hey, you know, we have to be on the side of, 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 uh, the Patriots. The, the great, uh, humorous writer, Donald Westlake made a career out of, uh, uh, writing caper books from the point of view of the burglars, the thieves, the crooks, um, you know, Dor- John Dortmunder, uh, who is the, the, the central figure in the hot rock, which was a, uh, uh, a movie, uh, a very successful movie with Robert Redford and others. And this is a very brilliant thief who plots the perfect crimes and things go wrong through no fault of his. And as every book, so we're always rooting for Dortmunder to have success uh, doing this. Uh, he's not violent at all. He never, would never hurt anybody. Uh, but every book, it just becomes funnier and funnier, all the things that go wrong. But we find ourselves rooting for a criminal. Yeah. I mean, like I remember in, in Mad Men, um, you know, I I, I, I I spent a lot of time reading books. I also spent a fair amount of time watching TV. But 
you, you like Don Draper, even though he's like a despicable human being. You know, he doesn't have many redeemable characteristics, yet you root for the anti-hero. Um, and that's something I could certainly appreciate. Uh, well, I mean, this book is coming out at a great time. So it just it was just um, uh, launched on, uh, what, uh, the 17th of November? Correct. Um, I imagine it would make a fantastic holiday gift for anybody who is into uh, into espionage. Yes, it does. Thanks for the commercial. <laughs> well, you know, part of this is learning about you, and the other part is uh, giving you a chance to, uh, to to sell some copies of this. Not that you're going to have a hard time with it, I'm sure. It's um, always it's harder than you think. It's always harder than you think. You know, I, some of these books have been very successful, and then you look at this; they seem very successful anyway. And then you look at the sales figures, and it's like, oh man, that's all we sold. I thought it was selling. I thought it was successful. And then I feel bad as, uh, as the author. And then when they don't sell, I feel guilty that I've you know, taken money under false pretenses. <laughs> so I, I like to see them sell. Well, you know, it's funny. My, my, I have a twin brother named Jim, and he, he has just finished a, um, a book. Um, it's, his, it's his first. I've, I've done about eight. And I tell him... He said, he's like, oh, God, it's so hard to write. This is so hard. And it's, it's a memoir because he's, he's talking about some experiences he's had. Um, but I tell him, Jim, the, the hard part is not the writing, right? You know, the, the writing is, should actually be the easy part for you. The harder part is going to be when you have to sell the damn thing because, you know, whoever winds up publishing it, you're going to find is not going to you know, do all the work for you in that regard. You know, you're going to have to sell this thing and not like a door to door salesman, but you know, it's, it's, it, it's become more of a challenge to actually, you know, promote, you know, these books when, when there's 7 million Kindle books you know, coming out every week, um, you know, you have to figure out a way to cut through the clutter and the publishing companies don't always, you know, do that for you, especially for, you know, young authors, meaning new authors, um, you know, I wouldn't call us young by any stretch of the imagination, but it's all true. But I do disagree with you. I think the hardest part is writing. Yeah, I would rather, you know, I wanted to be a writer. I spend a huge portion of my life writing and it's the hardest work. I'd rather do yard work. You know, <laughs> at one point I was writing a column, a weekly thousand word column for a New York newspaper, uh, The Sun. And uh, it was due, the column was due every Monday. And uh, so I was up in the country at, at, at my weekend house. And uh, my, my wife would say, um, could you help me in the garden? And I said, sure, anything to get me away from having to sit down and actually write. And it would be hanging over me. I was afraid of it on, a, on such a regular basis. What changed it, was I wrote another feature for the, for the same newspaper and a friend called me and said, so I was reading this article and I, I got partway through and I said, oh, this guy writes just like Otto. And then he looked at the byline and it was, and it was me. <laughs> and it was the first time, and this is about 10 years ago, it's the first time that I knew I had a style. First time. And Suddenly, writing the column became a lot easier for me. I, I, I lost some of my anxiety because I thought, oh, I've got a style. So I can, I can write. I, I can do this. So I, I write a little bit more easily now than I used to. Yep. 
Well, very good. Um, so we're, we're just about out of time, Otto. Um, so this went by fast. Uh, you know, I guess it's... A little too much about my early romantic life, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't pry too, too much into that. Um, I, I could ask more questions, but I'm, I'm, I'll, I will hold off on that. Uh, uh, you know too much already. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously no filter between my brain and my mouth. <laughs> Um, well, this is uh, this has been fun. So, the Great Big Book of Espionage available now wherever books are sold, um, especially at the Mysterious Bookshop. Especially so, where now? Where can people? What is the exact address in Tribeca of the Mysterious Bookshop? It's at Fifty Eight Warren Street. But uh, you're not in New York, and most of your listeners uh, aren't. So, MysteriousBookshop.com is your neighbor, neighborhood bookshop for mysteries. Well, perfect. Well, I'm only in Stanford, Connecticut, so I'm not too, too far from, uh, from New York at Trainwright, although I have not been uh, in quite some time, given this, uh, this crazy pandemic we are, uh, we're experiencing. So. Right, well, you're not alone there. Yeah, so hopefully, uh, hopefully when, when, things are, uh, when things are a little bit back to normal, uh, next spring perhaps, I will make a trip down to the, the physical location. Well, come on down and say hello. It'd be great. All right. Very good. Thank you very much, Otto. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show, Mike. Well, there you have it. My interview with Otto Penzler. Be sure to buy that big book of espionage wherever books are sold. Of course, you know, you can always go to his own bookstore, the Mysterious Bookshop, located in Manhattan's Tribeca neighborhood. Let's say hi to Otto. Buy the book there. Or uh, you could, of course, go to MysteriousBookshop.com on the old interwebs. And of course, if you want to learn more about me or check out my books, you can go to MikeCarlin.com. That's C-A-R-L-O-N.com, where you can uh, buy any of uh, the lovely books that I have written. Uh, now, I call them lovely. Um, some reviewers haven't, but, they, you know, that's their problem. Uh, you can, of course, uh, also visit UncorkingAStory.com, where you can listen to this episode, but also many of the other episodes, all of the other episodes, really, of uncorking a story uh, that we have done over the past, I don't know what it is now, eight years? We started in 2012. Wow, it's a lot of interviews. Go ahead, go back, listen. They're good. Some of them are great. <laughs> of course, I'm biased. So for all of us uh, here at Uncorking a Story, uh, this is Mike Carlin wishing you a very happy Thanksgiving. And uh, wear those masks, people. Wear those masks. Uh, be socially distant and, and all that. Enjoy the turkey. If turkey isn't your thing, I don't know, maybe you have lasagna on Thanksgiving. That's what my grandmother always made, and I prefer it. I'll tell you what, I don't really like turkey. Uh, But have a happy Thanksgiving. Stay safe out there. And uh, until next time, um, this is Mike Carlin saying uh, thanks for listening.